over this country. You have a lot of bright, decent, good people. They're saying, you know what? Situation is hopeless. You can't beat the Koch brothers. You can't beat the billionaires. You can't win. I'm giving up. That is exactly what they want us to believe. And I beg of you, do not enter that world of despair. We can win this fight if we stand together. a great country still so young yearning to be free and few show the burning kind of bravery to step up and lead with honesty and we live in a society where money means more than equality and wealth has trumped our integrity and families sell out for their dynasties well someone send a prayer straight to Washington and get up out of your chair to do something feel the burn 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 and we live in a great country the melting pot of diversity but all throughout our history it's been at someone's expense for our liberty well it's time for a change gotta rearrange the system in place is not working flawed education media manipulation none of this is really serving oh someone send a prayer straight to washington to get up out of your chair to do something Feel the burn, feel the burn 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 away that, that was Colin Martin singing Straight to Washington Which you can find on YouTube Just search for Colin Martin Or Straight to Washington Or give YouTube a search for Bernie Sanders' song And you may come up with that tune as well at the end of the program we'll hear another song for bernie sanders called feel the burn by isa infinity so awesome that song's found on the isa infinity so awesome youtube page greetings and welcome back to bernie 2016 this is an independent podcast established to follow and comment on Bernie Sanders' candidacy for President of the United States. This podcast is completely independent of any candidate, party, or PAC. You can find out more about Bernie 2016 at Bernie-2016.com. You can send me a message at BernieUS2016 at gmail.com or follow me on Twitter at BernieUS2016. If you use the app Flipboard, you can follow my magazine in Flipboard called Bernie for President, where you can see the thousands of articles that I have collected on Bernie. It's something that I kind of add to daily, take a look at uh, any news stories that people have posted, and capture those for my magazine Bernie for President. If you don't use the Flipboard app, you can access that 
Magazine online. You can find that on the website bernie-2016.com. First story today is from berniepost.com. Bernie Post is a great site. Someone out there collecting a number of stories on Bernie's campaign. And it's a, a pretty good site to keep up with what's going on. This article is by Justin Ackerman. What you can do to help elect Bernie. Getting involved in politics is kind of hard. And if, and if we're being honest, it is certainly considerably harder than it should be. Thankfully, Bernie Sanders and his massive grassroots campaign are trying to turn that on its head. A number of online communities and countless grassroots organizations all around the country are trying to reshape American politics, and joining one of those groups is step one to getting Bernie in the White House. Still, many might find themselves agreeing with Bernie Sanders but struggling to find a way to bring that message to the real world or live in an area without much of a grassroots presence. This certainly, this is certainly a big hurdle to overcome, but thanks to the internet, it's easier to become politically engaged than it ever has been in the past. The internet has become the most important resource for political campaigns, but that isn't because people can easily share campaign pictures or memes. Those efforts undoubtedly spread awareness and create new supporters. But clicktivism can only go so far. It is easy to bounce posts around the same progressively minded 18 to 30 year old bubble. But breaking out of that bubble takes work. Thankfully, with just a little bit of elbow grease, anyone interested in breaking out of that bubble can do so pretty easily. Phone banking is probably one of the most important things anyone can do by themselves, and that and the best part is you can do it from the comfort of your own home. Phone banking is the best way to contact potential voters in important states, whether that important state is New York because of their October 9th, which we're beyond October 9th now, voter registration deadline. So I'm going to pause and just talk about that for a minute. Um, if you want to vote in the Democratic primary in New York, you must be a registered Democrat. If you are not currently a registered Democrat, unfortunately, the deadline for changing your registration has passed by. I think that uh, New York has set their deadline for registration for for. Uh, um, declaring a party way too early in comparison to the vote or the primary vote uh, next year. Unfortunately, those are the rules that uh, people need to live by in New York. But I find this is something that is often targeted at other states, often targeted at southern states. I've, I saw a map recently that had the states that were given grades on the ability for people to easily register and vote. Um, and this was in relation to the uh, to the laws that those states have enacted that have made it more challenging to register, have put the polling places in many cases uh, 
out of reach or, or in a challenging locations for a lot of people to get to. And I have to say that New York, I think for at least for the deadline to register or to declare a party in the election, I think uh, New York should get a failing grade as far as being voter friendly and being open and flexible and really in encouraging lots of people to vote. There's still a lot of people that don't know very much about Bernie Sanders, and there are even more people that don't know very much about the other Democrats running, Jim Webb, Lincoln Chafee, and Martin O'Malley, and uh, Mr. Lessig, and I, Lawrence Lessing. I almost couldn't remember his first name at this point. Um, you know, these are other Democrats that are running. They're not particularly well known. Having the deadline of October 9th um, in New York just means anybody that learns about those candidates from this point forward does not have the opportunity, if they're not already a registered Democrat in New York, will not have the opportunity to vote for any of those candidates. This is a enormous benefit for any candidate who has extremely high um, name recognition and is extremely well known. And we know there's one Democrat that is running that uh, about 98% of the public knows who she is and is aware of her. And if they wanted to vote for her, they certainly would have probably made sure they registered as a Democrat before now. But anyone learning about any of the other candidates from this point forward is shut out of voting in the Democratic primary if they were not previously uh, a Democrat or previously registered as a Democrat. This will leave a lot of independents and a, a lot of Republicans who find someone on the Democratic side who they would support um, out of the picture. So it means fewer people are going to vote or they're going to go ahead and vote in the Republican primary if they're registered Republicans and choose someone on that side and not have the opportunity to choose someone who they would prefer. So this is just the Democratic Party putting in a policy um, for whatever their reasons in the in the background of, you know, what 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 determined their decision to make that happen. But this is really closing the Democratic Party. It's it's creating obstacles for people to join the Democratic Party. Um, it's it's bad for the party. Uh, and and I'm not a Democrat, but I am registered as a Democrat now because I support Bernie Sanders and I want to make sure I can vote for Bernie Sanders in the primary in my state, which is New Jersey. Um, there's not very many states that have uh, deadlines for declaring your party this far in advance. In fact, New York was the first. There may be one or two others that have uh, deadlines coming up before the end of the year. So absolutely without any doubt, um, if you intend to vote in the Democratic primary or caucus in your state, make sure you understand what that deadline is if you need to register as a Democrat. 
So there are some good resources online where you can find out that information. So I definitely encourage you to uh, go and check those resources out. So back to the story that I started, um, what you can do to help elect Bernie. And I'll just touch on a couple more points. This uh, article is relatively detailed. Um, so the second most important thing you can do is door-to-door canvassing or flyering. This helps spread the word locally and may even get more people involved. It allows you to make an impact in your community and hopefully connect with other local supporters. Campaign work isn't glorious. In fact, it can be some of the most thankless work there is. Phone banking is really just glorified telemarketing, but it is still incredibly important. The same can be said for door-to-door canvassing, which is really the same as any door-to-door salesmanship gig. One really good way to overcome the inherent awkwardness that comes with political salesmanship is taking the register-to-vote approach. Finally, one of the most important and easiest things you can do on your own is register people to vote. Setting up a table in most public locations with a stack of voter registration forms or a laptop is easy to do and usually perfectly within the confines of most local or city laws and university regulations. So there are a couple of things um, and one more here. Finally, one last way to raise awareness that is often overlooked, especially by younger voters, is letters to the editor of your local paper. Even some of the smallest weekly publications in the country have thousands of readers, and most of them also allow open submissions. Just typing up a few paragraphs on why you support Bernie Sanders and why he's good for your community and region could change a lot of people's opinions. So there are a few basic ways that you can um, volunteer and you can help elect Bernie Sanders um, from the website BerniePost.com. I spoke in the last episode of the first elected official or first elected Democrat, first representative to endorse Bernie Sanders and shortly after that endorsement, Bernie Sanders got his second endorsement from a congressional representative. This story is from the Huffington Post.com by Samantha Lackman. Representative Keith Ellison, Democrat Minnesota, endorsed Senator Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign on Monday, saying he was doing so, quote, as a matter of conscience. Ellison is co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, which Sanders helped co-found as a member of the House of Representatives in 1991. Representative Raul Grijalva, Democrat Arizona, the caucus's other co-chair, endorsed Sanders previously. Sanders is the only senator to have ever joined the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Quote, Bernie is really generating a lot of enthusiasm for civic participation, Ellison told the Huffington Post, which he pointed out especially important after the historically low turnout during last year's midterm elections. Quote, we are in need of a civic renaissance in America, and Bernie is generating a lot of excitement and energy among young people, old people, all kinds of people. And I think that is really critical. 
He added, the manner in which he is moving his campaign forward is healthy for our democracy. In addition to the endorsement from Representative Ellison, uh, Bernie Sanders received a, another endorsement from a, another union. And this is from NUHW.org, the National Union of Healthcare Workers. Nearly 200 elected rank and file leaders representing 11,000 members of the National Union of Healthcare Workers voted 72% to endorse Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders in the 2016 Democratic presidential primary at the union's annual leadership conference. Senator Sanders' message of reversing economic inequalities, his support for a single-payer health care system, Medicare for All, and his stance of holding HMOs like Kaiser Permanente accountable for failing to comply with mental health parity laws resonated with NUHW members. We've had a great relationship with Senator Sanders for years, said NUHW President Sal Roselli. He's the real thing. He's been standing up for working Americans for decades, but no president can go it alone. It will take a bottom-up grassroots movement to change the direction of our country. NUHW is proud to be part of that movement. The vote was a culmination of a three-month bottom-up democratic process. The union's executive board, consisting of elected rank-and-file members, sent questionnaires to every Republican and Democratic candidate. Union stewards reviewed the questionnaires and discussed the election at monthly steward council meetings. At each NUHW represented hospital, clinic, and nursing home and discussed the candidates with their constituent members in each facility. And finally, on October 10, leaders from throughout the union gathered in Pasadena to cast their ballots. I'm really uh, interested that they outlined their method of making that choice because a lot or some other unions who have come out and made an endorsement have come under fire by some of their members for not having a very democratic and very broad um, discussion and uh, election or voting or some kind of polling of the membership to determine what way the endorsement should go if, in fact, they feel that the union should make an endorsement at this point in the, the uh, election or in the primary. Um, so very good to see that they had a democratic process um, in their union to make that choice and that the union leadership followed the representation or represented the union members in that case. A story from the LATimes.com by Christina Bellantoni. Bernie Sanders' Grassroots Army. They paint illegal murals in downtown Los Angeles. They collect email addresses they don't know where to send. They organize their own meetups, hand out political flyers in multiple languages, and registered voters. 
in liberal precincts of California and like-minded enclaves scattered across the country, ardent Bernie Sanders supporters are taking matters into their own hands with little, if any, guidance from the Vermont senator's official campaign. Quote, I was five feet away from him and he was saying, nothing will change even with me running. So it's about building this grassroots army behind me, said Suzanne O'Keefe, 52. And I thought, yep, I can help build that army. O'Keefe, a web developer, writer, and filmmaker, met Sanders when he made an impromptu drop in at Cantor's Deli in Los Angeles following his appearance in June on Real Time with Bill Maher. She was already part of a group of Sanders supporters, but the face-to-face -face interaction got her even more invested. Sanders talked about grassroots support during Tuesday's first Democratic debate and rewarded some of his supporters here with a fundraiser at the Avalon Hollywood on Wednesday night. Quote, the only way we really transform America, Sanders said in the debate, is through a political revolution when millions of people begin to come together and stand up and say, our government is going to work for all of us, not just a handful of billionaires. He touted the 4,000 house parties hosted by his supporters as evidence of that political revolution driven by people, quote, who want real change in this country. The campaign tries to coordinate at least some of that activity, but for many of the people organizing on Sanders' behalf, from artists and musicians to filmmakers and high school students, the effort has become a do-it-yourself exercise in activism. And this article it goes on quite a bit more, talking about the supporters, the grassroots army, as they call it, that is coming together in support of Bernie Sanders. And I think that this is the best way for Bernie to win. I think having a top-down organization led by the campaign, it's um, important for a number of aspects of the campaign. But for the uh, political revolution that Sanders has called for, I think it is absolutely necessary for a very large uh, do-it-yourself contingent to mobilize. And we can all do different things. We all are doing different things, all with the same goal in mind. Promote this candidate, promote this candidate's ideas and help get him elected. And as he said, if, if we do that, but then we drop back or fall back or walk away, or he walks away from us, then it will be extraordinarily hard for any of his policies to become enacted. We know we won't necessarily have a friendly Congress, but it's up to us when we are voting to elect Bernie Sanders to go beyond the top of the ticket and to find any uh, Sanders supporters and um, any other progressives out there that are running for Congress, running for state office, running for local office, and get them elected as well. It's only by really stacking the deck and getting a lot more progressives in positions where they can have an impact that we will come anywhere close to getting a lot of Sanders ideas um, through Congress. If we aren't successful in changing Congress, 
then we're going to have a heck of our fight on our hands of trying to push push forward and push the officials that are in place to to enact the agenda that Sanders has put forward. So that political revolution has to happen, has to be real, um, or regardless of Sanders getting elected, you know, we we won't get what we need and what we want from his presidency. And in that sense, there will be a lot of people that will call it a failure if Sanders gets elected but does not get his uh, platform put forward and, and moved forward by the Congress that is in place. So huge things are at stake here. And that's why so many people are people who weren't active in politics previously. And that includes me are standing up and taking actions that they otherwise would not have um, to uh, move this revolution forward. Robert Reich had a article that I spoke about last episode and has another one here on this episode. This one was published at rawstory.com. And this is called Robert Reich, One of the Most Important Differences Between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. Giant Wall Street banks continue to threaten the well-being of millions of Americans, but what to do? Bernie Sanders says break them up and resurrect the Glass-Steagall Act that once separated investment from commercial banking. Hillary Clinton says charge them a bit more and oversee them more carefully. Most Republicans say, don't worry. Clearly there's a reason to worry. Back in 2000, before they almost ruined the economy, and had to be bailed out, the five biggest banks on Wall Street had held 25% of the nation's banking assets. Now they hold more than 45%. Their huge size fuels further growth because they'll be bailed out if they get into trouble again. This hidden federal guarantee against failure is estimated to be worth over $80 billion a year to the big banks. In effect, it is a subsidy from the rest of us to the bankers. And they'll almost certainly get into trouble again if nothing dramatic is done to stop them. Consider their behavior since they were bailed out. In 2012, J.P. Morgan Chase, the largest bank on street, lost $6.2 billion betting on credit default swaps tied to corporate debt, and then publicly lied about the losses. It later came out that the bank paid illegal bribes to get the business in the first place. Last May, the Justice Department announced a settlement of the biggest criminal price-fixing conspiracy in modern history, in which the biggest banks manipulated the $5.3 trillion a day currency market in a, quote, brazen display of collusion, according to Attorney General Loretta Lynch. Wall Street is on the road to another crisis. This would take a huge toll, although the banks have repaid the billions we lent them in 2008, many Americans are still living with the collateral damage from what occurred, lost jobs, savings, and homes. But rather than prevent this by breaking up the big banks and resurrecting Glass-Steagall, 
Hillary Clinton is taking a more cautious approach. She wants to impose extra fees on the banks, with the amounts turning not on the bank's size, but how much it depends on short-term funding, such as fast-moving capital markets, which is a way of assessing riskiness. So a giant bank that relies mainly on bank deposits wouldn't be charged. Clinton would also give bank regulators more power than they have had under the Dodd-Frank Act, passed in the wake of the last banking crisis, to break up any particular bank that they consider too risky. And she wants more oversight of so-called shadow banks, pools of money like money market mutual funds, hedge funds, and insurance funds that act like banks. All this makes sense, and in a world where the giant Wall Street banks didn't have a huge political power, these measures might be enough. But if you hadn't noticed, Wall Street's investment bankers, key traders, top executives, and hedge fund and private equity managers wield extraordinary power. They're major sources of campaign contributions to both parties. And the story goes on from there as well, talking more about the risks from the banking. Um, the In the debate that happened recently, this issue came up and Hillary spoke uh, strongly that she was a senator from New York before the banking crisis and she went to Wall Street and she told them in I don't know if this is an exact quote but this is a pretty close approximation she told them cut it out and I think this is this is um, the other candidates big big missed opportunity in that debate is that no one came back with a strong response to that and I think it's just so plainly obvious she left the door wide open and uh, any one of them should have come back and said, well, that's great, but it didn't work. If you if you went to Wall Street before the crisis and you told them to cut it out and then the crisis happened, then the action that you took was absolutely ineffective. And I think that it's uh, no surprise that the action that Hillary took then and would likely take in the future um, would not have an impact because of where much of her campaign funding comes from. Also during that debate uh, there was a question and it was kind of the one question that uh, people of, or one question that, that came, I guess, from the push that people of color have made, um, including Black Lives Matter and other groups in this uh, presidential primary campaign season. Um, really being forceful and raising their voices and getting their ideas into the primary, um, something that would not have happened without their strong advocacy and without their actions that they have taken to do so. And 
sadly, very little opportunity was given during this debate for people who are supporters of of those groups and organizations to ask a question. But one question was asked, and the question was straightforward. And the question was, uh, do black lives matter or do all lives matter? And they asked this of all the candidates at the debate. And Bernie, I don't remember if Bernie was the first or second to respond or to answer the question. And he said, black lives matter. And he explained some of his uh, key points in relation um, and spoke up about um, the particular case of Sandra Bland, who was pulled over by, for not signaling when she changed lanes in Texas, who challenged the stop and who was really horrifically treated um, in that stop by the officer who stopped her, uh, some of which can be seen on video from the officer's um, dash cam video camera, and some of which can be heard but not seen because it happens off of video or off of off of the screen. And in her case, three days later, she was found dead in, in a cell at the station where she was being held after being stopped for not signaling when she was changing lanes. So, and, and as Sanders, I think very rightly points out, if she was a white woman, then it is extraordinarily unlikely that any of that would have occurred. Um, so here's a story from the Huffington post.com by Ryan Grenoble. Remember the time Senator Bernie Sanders met with Sandra Bland's mother and shamelessly used it for political capital? Neither do we, because though the Democratic presidential candidate apparently did meet Geneva Reed Veal, he didn't tell anyone about it. He did, however, promise to say her name, which he did Tuesday during the first Democratic presidential debate. The tale of Sanders' chance encounter with Reed Veal comes via the Reverend Hannah Bonner, who bumped into Sanders at Union Station in Washington last week while she was eating with Reed Veal and invited the presidential candidate to join their table. Bonner wrote in her blog recalling the meeting that she was, quote, that she, quote, was completely blown away by the unexpectedness of it all, the sacredness of the moment and the sincerity of all involved. Bonner wrote that after they talked, quote, we asked Senator Sanders if we could take a picture with him, and he consented. He did not impose upon Ms. Geneva to ask for a picture of his own. He did not use the moment as an opportunity to promote his campaign. He took no record. He made no statement. He did not try to turn it into a publicity stunt. He simply made space for a sacred moment and then let it pass without trying to gain anything from it. For that, I respect him. For that, I am grateful. That choice may not have made him a very good politician, but it made him a better man. And Bonner shared the photo that they took 
to uh, show that that meeting did in fact take place and her account of it was an account, an accurate account of, of what occurred there. So uh, kudos to Bernie Sanders for finding himself in that situation and with that opportunity and, you know, being a human being and not politicizing the event that was just a, a happenstance that, that occurred. And, uh, I think he is better for it as hopefully they are as well. So there's a lot of talk after the debate the other night um, of who won. I think that the it's interesting to see how the media acts in that sense of who won and who lost. I, I personally don't think that the debate and the style of this debate really had winners and losers. There were people who didn't perform well. Um, and there were people who performed well and probably advanced their campaign. I think for the most part, um, Hillary performed well and she certainly advanced her campaign. Bernie Sanders performed well and advanced his campaign. Uh, Martin O'Malley performed well, I think, um, didn't rise to the level of giving his campaign a huge boost, but I think um, at least became visible to people who had no idea who he was previously. I think both Lincoln Chafee and Jim Webb um, did not put on very strong performances that would have really piqued a whole lot of interest or um, driven a lot more support in their direction. So that's just, that's my general sense of, of performance, uh, performance wise, how the d- debate went. I think the debate was terrible as far as how it was framed and where it was located. This was set up by CNN as a big media spectacle. Um, but this is pretty run, run of the mill or, or standard procedure for this type of an event. I think that it, it, did the Democrats no favors to have the debate staged and promoted in the way that it was as if it was a big heavyweight fight that, uh, you know, two the top boxers were, were going at it on pay-per-view. That type of a, a feeling I think was projected. It was at the Wynn casino in Las Vegas. Um, I think a, a, a venue and a style that really does not promote what the Democrats should be about in this election. I think that the Democrats would have been far more well served to have this debate at a community center with only members of the general public um, involved and invited and not the elite. And I don't really know and understand the whole makeup of the audience, but the whole way it was staged was 
a bit of uh, that grotesque level of spectacle and um, less focus on substance. Thankfully, at least a a fair amount of the um, conversation in the debate was focused on the issues. It was not an event where people were name-calling and uh, focused on on things that were way outside of the uh, substantive issues that we're facing. So uh, here is a story from Vox.com. DC insiders think Bernie Sanders lost the debate. Here's why they might be wrong. And this is by Andrew Prokop. The consensus of political commentators is clear. Hillary Clinton won the first Democratic debate. Her polished performance utterly outclassed her rivals, including Bernie Sanders, and reaffirmed her status as the obvious nominee. Yet focus groups, search data, and social media information all tell a different story, one in which many viewers loved what Bernie Sanders had to say or were, at the very least, quite interested in him. I agree that Clinton turned in a strong performance, and that matters, as it could help her win back the confidence of a party insiders worried about her recently declining numbers and help deter Vice President Biden from entering the race. But the debate wasn't just about party insiders or the views of pundits, and there are reasons to believe actual voters watching might come to very different conclusions than the professionals did. Consider the following. After the first Republican debate in August, Marco Rubio was generally acclaimed as the winner. Practically no one in the media thought Ben Carson had won because his performance seemed so stylistically unimpressive. Yet it was Carson who suddenly surged in the polls, up to second place, where he currently remains. Big majorities of post-debate focus groups conducted by CNN, Fox News, and Fusion all judged Bernie Sanders to be the winner. Now focus groups are hardly scientific. The Fox News one after the first GOP debate thought Donald Trump had collapsed, yet he actually went up in the polls afterwards. Sanders has risen to second place in primary polls by repeating a few basic themes. He wants to challenge the power of the wealthy, to take on Wall Street and corporations, and to make America more like the social democratic Nordic countries. He hit those themes hard and clearly throughout the debate. In political parlance, he was, quote, on message. Political commentators like me have been covering Sanders for months, and his message is old hat to us at this point, so we give him no credit for repeating those basic themes that have made him so popular on the left and focus instead on moments where something new happens. But many voters haven't been following the race so closely. Beforehand, a third of Democrats said they didn't yet know enough about Sanders to have an opinion on him. Even many of those who did know about him likely hadn't been exposed to him all that much. One of Sanders' most important moments in the debate, his defense of Clinton and criticism of the media over the email issue, was generally scored by pundits as a victory for Clinton. My colleague Ezra Klein, for instance, suggested it showed Sanders didn't have the instinct for the jugular that will be necessary to take down the front runner. 
But to Democratic voters, it could also speak to Sanders' character and mark him as a different kind of politician who's not interested in negative campaigning. Indeed, Fox News' focus group wildly praised Sanders for this. It was their favorite moment in the entire debate. And I to to leave the uh, article behind here now, the that moment of the debate when Anderson Cooper asked Bernie Sanders to comment on Hillary Clinton's email, which I think was was a setup as everybody who knows Sanders understands how he feels and thinks about this type of a question where Bernie Sanders said, you know, I'm going to do something that's not that's not probably not very politically savvy, but I'm going to agree with the secretary and say that the American people are tired of hearing about your damn emails to which she said, so am I, so am I. It was a big moment. I think it was a big moment in the debate. It was probably one of the most well-remembered lines from the debate. Sanders went on to uh, take a knock or knock against the media for that type of question and focus and saying that they're the ones that are really interested in this and it really obscures the discussion of the real issues. Unfortunately, um, where the debate did often hit on those real issues, having the biggest moment of the debate again be about Clinton's emails um, really kind of... uh, takes away from Sanders' desire to not need to talk about those things and to talk about the issues more and focus on the issues. What a a great event it would have been if the, you know, number one uh, quote coming out of the debate was something much more substantive than the American people are tired of hearing about your damn emails. In addition to uh, Sanders' performance at the debate, the watching the um, online uh, social networks during the debate, um, Sanders had huge, huge impact there. He had the most new Facebook followers following the debate. He added more than 35,000 um, followers. He dominated in Google search traffic. Um, so there was an enormous amount of online activity, uh, in relation to Bernie Sanders, um, during and around that debate. So I think that also points to people just not knowing Bernie Sanders and really shows that deep well of opportunity that Bernie still has in getting name recognition and having people understand what he stands for and really speaks to an opportunity for a a, a large increase in uh, Bernie Sanders support. After the debate, uh, Trump responded to um, the debate by in his speech, speaking against Bernie Sanders, both calling him a maniac and a communist, and the Bernie Sanders um, spokesperson uh, 
Simone Sanders said if we responded to every, and I'm paraphrasing here because I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but essentially if we respond to every crazy thing that Donald Trump says, we won't have time for anything else. So I think a very uh, apt response to what Donald Trump had to say. And another story from theburnreport.com by Calvin Wolf. Chapter 1 of the 2016 Democratic presidential primaries ended on Tuesday night with the conclusion of the first Democratic debate. Despite a rough summer, frontrunner Hillary Clinton performed well on stage and appeared to stabilize her erosion in the polls. Martin O'Malley, Lincoln Chafee, and Jim Webb, the three minor Democratic candidates, scored few points and remained minor candidates. Bernie Sanders, Clinton's progressive challenger, performed well and used the opportunity of media focus to spread his message to a wider audience. Many pundits thought that Clinton won the debate, but most focus groups and online polls handed a victory to Sanders. The situation is analogous to Democratic campaign fundraising. Clinton narrowly wins the money race due to overwhelming support from wealthy donors, but Sanders pulls a surprisingly close second through widespread grassroots donations. Pundits and wealthy donors favor Clinton, but the general public favors Sanders. Reinforcement of this general public preference for Sanders may be alarming some Clinton fans who seem to be launching a backlash against Sanders supporters for being too, well, vocal. Sanders supporters who have criticized the media and punditry for quickly calling the debate victory for Clinton are being called conspiracy nuts. This is condescending and ignores genuine complaints progressives have with media conglomerates, especially its support of political candidates. Time Warner, which owns CNN, the network which hosted the Democratic debate, is eighth largest donor to Hillary Clinton. The portrayal of Sanders supporters as conspiracy theorists and quasi-racists due to their disagreement with Black Lives Matter protesters' complaints about Sanders may become more highly publicized during Chapter 2 of the campaign. As Sanders becomes more of a threat to Clinton, his supporters will likely be further pilloried and accused of sexism, misogyny, and all manner of extremism. Already, Sanders supporters are being accused of harming the Democratic Party by championing extreme views that will, according to critics, never win a general election. These critics are wrong. Sanders' views are what the general public wants. They're what the middle class needs. What we don't need is a philosophy that we should focus on, quote, getting things done rather than fixing real problems. Only Sanders will fight for real progress, not compromises that leave the middle class in the lurch and allow real wages to continue to erode. And my next story is from Politicus USA. Dot com. It is from Jason Easley and is titled, Bernie Sanders has raised a phenomenal $3.2 million in less than three days. So coming out of the debate, Bernie Sanders fundraising has really exploded and he has raised a whole lot of money since that. The Demo- And here's a story. The Democratic debate has energized 
as energized Bernie Sanders supporters as the Democratic candidate raised an amazing $3.2 million in three days this week, all from small donors. According to the Sanders campaign, quote, and in a remarkable turn of events, there has been a record surge in online donations this week. More than 97,800 contributions poured in, totaling some $3.2 million since Tuesday when the first Democratic debate was held in Las Vegas through mid-afternoon on Thursday. Also on the day after the debate, Sanders attracted 1,100 people to a $25 per person fundraiser and rally on Wednesday in Southern California. It was only the eighth traditional fundraiser of his campaign. A ninth event was held that same evening, with tickets going for two fifty and up. The fact that Sanders donors give a smaller amount per person means that the campaign can ask donors to give multiple times without, without risking them maxing out and hitting the per person donation limit. No matter who the experts and supporters think won the debate, it is clear that Bernie Sanders supporters have been energized by the debate. And this article by Charles Davis called Bernie Sanders may not be a hawk, but he's also no dove. And this was on telesurti.net, T-E-L-E-S-U-R. T-Y, actually that's Telesurtv, T-E-L-E-S-U-R-T-V dot net. At the first Democratic primary party debate, the socialist senator from Vermont reminded viewers of all the U.S. wars he has supported. Bernie Sanders opposed the criminal invasion of Iraq to his eternal credit. And Hillary Clinton not only supported, but propagandized on behalf of that 2003 violation of the Nuremberg Principles to her eternal shame. Yet at the first debate of the Democratic primary season in Las Vegas, the Democratic Socialist from Vermont failed to seriously distinguish him from the former Secretary of State when it came to matters of war and peace. There was peace-friendly rhetoric, quote, I happen to believe from the bottom of my heart that war should be the last resort, said Sanders, a senator from Vermont, who applied to be a conscientious objector during the war on Vietnam. But then no politician who hopes to someday be commander-in-chief ever says force is anything but a final option. And Bernie was clear, quote, I am prepared to take this country into war if that is necessary. That, too, is unremarkable. It's what anyone running for president in the country that has started the most wars is required by custom to say. The troubling part for those who assume socialist means peacenik is that Sanders backed up the traditional rhetoric by, rhetoric by pointing to all the wars, some ongoing, that he has offered support. I am not a pacifist, he told the moderator. I supported the war in Afghanistan. And I supported President Clinton's effort to deal with ethnic cleansing in Kosovo. I support airstrikes in Syria and what the president is trying to do. There is no question that when it comes to deploying lethal force, the senator's chief rival for the Democratic nomination, whose husband's wars he supported, is much more the hawk. Asked what enemies she was most proud of making, Clinton listed the Iranians alongside health insurance companies 
like the crippling sanctions she supported, not even bothering to differentiate between the people and the regime. Still, Sanders' attempts to cast the former First Lady as a warmonger only revealed that they both support the same wars. I do not support the American ground troops in Syria, said the senator, to which Clinton quickly responded, well, nobody does. And the story goes on um, about Sanders and how he uh, focused his attention on those foreign policy elements in that particular debate. Um, There certainly are many on the left who... As, as much as they um, agree with a lot of what Sanders stands for, um, do believe that he is too easy or too quick to support some of the wars, some of the military actions that are put forth by others in power, and that he is too quick to support the military-industrial complex, which has benefited Vermont um, through uh, particular weapons programs and basing of military aircraft in Vermont. So uh, there is definitely some criticism from that side um, against uh, Bernie Sanders. And here is a press release from Bernie Sanders from October 15th. And this is no COLA for Social Security disabled vets. Social Security, comma, disabled vets is, quote, unacceptable. U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders on Thursday called it unacceptable that millions of seniors will get no annual cost of living adjustment in their Social Security checks in 2016. The announcement on Thursday by the Social Security Administration also means that there will be no boost in benefits for disabled veterans. Next year will be only the third time in 40 years that there will be no increase in benefits tied to the Consumer Price Index. The way COLAs are calculated, quote, is clearly broken and must be fixed, Sanders said. Quote, it is unacceptable that millions of senior citizens and disabled veterans will not be receiving a cost of living adjustment to keep up with their rising living expenses, he said. At a time when senior poverty is going up and more than two-thirds of the elderly population rely on Social Security for more than half of their income, our job must be to expand, not cut, Social Security. Sanders has faulted the formula used by the Social Security Administration to determine how much benefits should go up each year in order to keep pace with rising living expenses. He has proposed legislation to accurately measure inflation that reflects the spending patterns of seniors through a consumer price index for the elderly. Senior citizens spend disproportionate amount of their income on health care and prescription drugs, and those costs continue to skyrocket, Sanders said. The reality is that most senior citizens are not in the habit of buying fancy computers, big screen TVs, and high-tech gadgets. From 
the website AIDSHealth.org. AHF backs Senator Sanders' call on U.S. and World Trade Organization to back waiver of drug patents in poor countries. AIDS Healthcare Foundation, AHF, applauded Senator Bernie Sanders and endorsed his recent call on the United States to support an indefinite waiver of drug patents in least developed countries, LDC, in anticipation of World Trade Organization, WTO, meetings in Geneva this week to update WTO standards on granting and enforcing drug patents. Senator Sanders wrote a letter to U.S. Trade Representative Michael Froman requesting that, quote, the administration endorse an indefinite waiver of the World Trade Organization's obligations to grant and enforce pharmaceutical patents for countries classified by the U.N. as LDCs. In his September 28th letter to Froman, Sanders noted, quote, based on conversations between my staff and the staff of the United States Trade Representative, I understand the administration does not support a permanent exception for drug patents for these poor countries. He later added, quote, making sure people in poor countries have access to life-saving medicine is our moral responsibility. According to Sanders, quote, these impoverished countries submitted a request to the WTO in February for a permanent extension of the exception of the obligation to grant drug patents for as long as a country is classified as an LCD by the UN. The WTO rules require such requests to be granted when they are, quote, duly motivated. This is a reasonable standard. It means that poor countries will be able to afford medicine to keep their people alive. Quote, we once again thank Senator Sanders for his compassion and common sense leadership on drug pricing and policies and urge the U.S. Trade Representative to back and the WTO to grant the requested drug patent exemptions for these countries in order that they may afford life-saving medicines they need, said AHF President Michael Weinstein. As Senator Sanders simply stated in closing his letter, too many lives are at stake. And this story from HuffingtonPost.com by Sam Levine. Senator Bernie Sanders declined to accept a maximum campaign donation from the CEO of a company that increased the price of a drug used by HIV and AIDS patients by hundreds of dollars, choosing instead to donate the money to a Washington health clinic. Martin Shkreli CEO of Turing Pharmaceuticals donated $2,700, the maximum allowed for individual donors, in September, he told Stat. While the Sanders campaign initially thanked Shkreli for his contribution, campaign spokesman told Stat this week that it would donate the money to Whitman Walker Health Clinic. Shkreli, who raised the price of Daraprim from $13.50, to $750 per tablet after acquiring it in August, told Stat that he donated in part to get a meeting with Sanders to explain how drug prices were set. Sanders has refused to meet with him. After backlash over the sudden increase, Shkreli said in September that the company would lower the price. At the beginning of October, ABC News found that the price still remained extremely high. 
As part of his presidential campaign, Sanders has pushed to lower the cost of prescription drugs. His proposals include allowing Medicare to negotiate with pharmaceutical companies on drug prices, allowing the import of drugs from Canada, and requiring more transparency on how drug prices are set. When he served in the House, Sanders was also the first member of Congress to lead a group of seniors on a bus trip to Canada to buy cheaper prescription drugs. Shkreli's maximum donation to Sanders also puts him in the minority of Sanders' campaign donors. Only 0.039% of them have given the maximum 2700 While Sanders raised $27 million in the third quarter of his campaign, the average donation was $30. And I spoke a little while ago about the probably... Um, most well-known line from the debate that uh, Sanders delivered, but I just came across an interesting story on that line and that message and um, how the commercial media is portraying it. And this is from TheIntercept.com called Cable News Edits Out Rousing Sanders Attack on Vapid Media Coverage by Lee Fang. Bernie Sanders garnered one of the biggest applause lines during the debate Tuesday night and a trending hashtag when he slammed the media for focusing on Hillary Clinton's, quote, damn emails, instead of asking the candidates about poverty, inequality, trade policies, and the Citizens United Supreme Court decision. But from watching television coverage of this dramatic moment in the debate, you would only hear half of the story. Playing clips from the debate, CNN and other networks focused almost exclusively on the political impact of Sanders expressing solidarity with Clinton about her damn emails, while editing out his comment about the failures of the media to talk about the biggest issues facing America. Take, for example, this clip from MSNBC last night. At the 0.58 moment in the clip above, Sanders is heard saying, quote, The secretary is right, and that is that the American people are sick and tired of hearing about your damn emails. Enough of the emails. Let's talk about the real issues facing America. But here's the part that was edited out. The middle class Anderson, and let me say something about the media as well. I go around the country, talk to a whole lot of people. Middle class in this country is collapsing. We have 27 million people living in poverty. We have massive wealth and income inequality. Our trade policies have cost us millions of decent jobs. The American people want to know whether we're going to have a democracy or an oligarchy as a result of Citizens United. The way MSNBC covered it left viewers with the impression that Sanders was going after the Republican Party for obsessing over Clinton's private email server. In fact, he was railing against the sensationalism-obsessed media that ignores bread-and-butter issues affecting normal Americans, as well as systemic corruption in politics. So as this article clearly points out, and the bigger point that uh, Sanders was making when he made that statement was that it's a distraction. It's a distraction from the important um, things that are going on in our country, in our economy. And it's a distraction that benefits the corporate media. It's a distraction that benefits the 
insider politics and their big money donors. And it's a distraction that really hurts the middle class and hurts the people that are not prospering in our current economic system. And this story from Medium.com by DeRay McKesson. Reflections on meeting with Senator Bernie Sanders and Secretary Hillary Clinton and the Dem debate. I recently joined protesters and activists in meeting with Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton to discuss the Black Lives Matter movement and policy proposals anchored in Campaign Zero to end police violence. We've also requested meetings with Martin O'Malley, Marco Rubio, and Ben Carson. In general, we are open to meeting with any candidate seeking to be the next president to discuss these ideas. While police violence is a key issue to the movement, it is clear that there are a range of issues important to blackness that are beyond police violence and or criminal justice. In these conversations with Senator Sanders and Secretary Clinton, we began by by focusing on police violence and then broadened the scope of the conversations. And he goes and gives a little background about the nature of the meetings. We met with Senator Sanders for an hour and met with his staff after he left for another 45 minutes. Here is a preparation and reflection document which includes notes from the meeting itself used for the meeting. Community Policing In the opening conversation of the meeting, Senator Sanders commented that the police often make people feel safe in many communities, to which we replied that this is not true in many black communities. We pushed him to rethink, quote, community policing, as this term suggests that the police should be ever-present in black communities, patrolling, tutoring, playing basketball, etc., sustaining the notion that police presence is what makes people safe. We noted that this idea of community policing is rarely, if ever, applied to white or wealthy communities, that if these communities had an ever-present police presence, it would be unacceptable. We also pushed him to think of the most affluent or white community in most cities and to think about why it is safe. It is likely that these spaces are safe because they are resourced and empowered differently, not because of an ever-present police force. Income versus wealth. Senator Sanders has a long history of discussing economic justice and often focuses on income. We pushed him to think about the racial wealth gap as a clearer indicator of ending inequality. While black families make about 60% as much income as white families, they only have 7% of the total financial resources of white families, making it much harder to endure a financial crisis and make critical investments in higher education and home ownership. We propose solutions to close the wealth gap, including baby bonds, child savings accounts, IDAs, and home ownership programs. We noted that, for example, bringing families below the poverty line up to the poverty line still means that these families are likely living paycheck to paycheck and that a focus on income and not wealth masks the depths of of inequity. Senator Sanders listened, pushed us on some of the data to gain clarity, and agreed with us on this point in the end. Broken Windows Policing We talked to Senator Sanders about ending the policing of, quote, quality of life offenses, i.e. loitering, public drinking, disorderly conduct, etc., and mental health crises, a practice which disproportionately impacts black and brown communities. 
We discussed approaches to addressing these activities that do not center the police, such as deploying mental health providers or social workers to respond to these situations. Senator Sanders agreed with the need to invest in mental health services in responses to crisis situations. Marijuana legalization. We talked to Senator Sanders about making sure that people of color who have been disproportionately criminalized in the informal marijuana economy do not get locked out of the emerging legalized marijuana economy because of criminal records tied to possessing or distributing marijuana. Senator Sanders asked for additional clarity on some key points and noted that he had not heard this argument in this way before and would consider it. And I also had not even thought of this uh, this issue in this way before as well. And I think it's um, very interesting that uh, over the years with marijuana being illegal and the number of people impacted by those laws um, now have records, have maybe been incarcerated um, based on breaking laws that are starting to be torn down. Um, so those laws are are starting to come down in certain states and be um, less enforced or being repealed outright. And, you know, if if marijuana becomes legal and part of the regular economy, we should not be banning people from taking part of that who have records due to offenses of when that when those substances were illegal. So I find this a very interesting argument and something that I just hadn't really thought of before. Legislative avenues for racial equity. We push Senator Sanders to think about how federal legislation can include formulas or other prescriptive measures to ensure that the legislation meaningfully impacts the lives of black people. In this context, we discussed his support of job creation legislation and pushed him to consider robust language that focused on ending the joblessness of black and brown people. A jobs bill that creates 19 million jobs is important, but a specific focus on racial equity is needed to ensure that people of color will actually benefit from such a bill. A range of barriers, racial bias in the hiring process, discrimination based on past criminal records, and lack of access to housing, child care, education, and transportation could prevent black people from being able to participate in this program unless intentional measures are taken to ensure access. And on this point, at least some of those issues um, are addressed in the youth jobs bill that uh, Sanders put forward. Um, though that bill had money set aside specifically for child care and transportation related issues in regards to um, those jobs that that bill was to create. Civil asset forfeiture. We pushed Senator Sanders to take a position on civil asset forfeiture given its economic implications for people of color who are disproportionately likely to have their cash and property confiscated by police without due process. He heard us and indicated that he would take action to end this practice. In the days since that meeting, he came out against civil asset forfeiture, and his campaign added a section to their racial justice platform focused on the issue. It was important that Senator Senator Sanders noted that Black Lives Matter and that and that he highlighted 
institutional racism and the need to reform the criminal justice system. Also, his statements during the debate reflected the presence of a strong initial platform, and I look forward to see expanded in the coming months. I look forward to Sanders using more language and enhancing his platform to highlight an an affirmation that the presence of resources, jobs, housing, etc. in communities leads to safety without depicting policing as being central to securing safety in black communities. And this article goes on to describe the meeting that was held with uh, Hillary Clinton as well. I think it's um, got a lot of very important points and is a a, a very strong initial opening discussion with the candidates for president. I think that it would not have come about without the Black Lives Matter movement and their specifically their actions that they've taken at uh, presidential um, primary events. Um, And I think that is a net positive to get these items and these discussions and these topics and these um, opinions out in and becoming part of the debate um, and part of the platforms that the uh, candidates for for the Democratic nomination and maybe with some luck uh, some of the candidates for the Republican nomination will um, adopt at least some of these uh, these items as well so that will wrap up this episode of Bernie 2016 Uh, Thank you very much for listening. You can find out more about Bernie 2016 at Bernie-2016.com. You can send me a message at BernieUS2016 at gmail.com. Or you can follow me on Twitter at BernieUS2016. As I said out front, we will uh, be listening as we end the program to Feel the Burn by... ISA, which you can find on the ISA YouTube page. Thanks very much for listening. Feel the burn. 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 Fe